0: Is uh, Jacob here with us this morning? Okay, good, good. Well, three out of the four of the babies are with us this morning. Uh, It is so good to uh, see our new moms and and dads and the new babies uh, joining us for worship this morning. Um, Just having Elizabeth for four weeks now. Tomorrow is our fifth week. Children are indeed a gift from the Lord. And I know that all of you rejoice with us because... um, God has blessed all of us with these brand new babies. Now I was thinking how these are the next generation of believers at Cornerstone. Uh, one day, uh, according to God's will, that they will be saved, they would grow, and they might even serve with us. You know, who knows? We might have uh, Nathan and Derek be our next small group leaders, maybe in Tijuana or something, <laughs> By uh, when they grow up. And who knows, maybe uh, the four babies, uh, um, Elizabeth, Anna, Noah and Jacob will be our next worship team. You know, who knows? You know That would be an awesome thing to see, to see these children grow up in godly families and in the church that endeavors to honor God and just to see uh, the blessing that they are to us as we will be to them. Well, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Uh, we're back to our study of the Gospel of John. Um, if you have been with us for the past nine months, you realize that it took us about nine months to get through five chapters of John, I did a little calculation this week. According to my calculations, we will be done with the Gospel of John. We're on the tail end of 2004. So I hope that all of you are here to finish out 21 chapters of this Gospel. Now, today we're finishing, as I said, the last section of of John's Gospel in Chapter 5. And before we get to the text, I want all of us to back up a bit and take a big picture view of this Gospel. I want us to kind of step back, and uh, we're going to focus on the tree in a moment, but I want to look at the forest and see the big picture and see the progression of our Lord's ministry in John's Gospel. You know, we do this week after week. We study expositionally the, the passage set before us, and we can easily have a tendency, I think, to lose sight of the big picture, uh, especially the Gospel of John, and it's important for us to have this mindset, this big picture mindset constantly before us because there is a buildup of tension and drama in this gospel. There is literally a drama brewing right chapter in and chapter out. Well, go back to chapter 1. Just in your minds, way back to the beginning, you remember that John begins with a prologue and it begins much like the book of Genesis. It has a sweeping beginning. It begins with in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The Gospel of John begins unlike any other Gospel. Other synoptic Gospel writers Matthew, Mark, Luke begins with a prophecy of Isaiah as does Mark or Matthew begins with the birth of Christ. But John begins in the beginning literally from before the foundation of the earth he spends 18 verses setting the whole stage for the rest of the Gospel. The next period is John 119 through 454. 119 through 454. This is the period what many Bible students call the period of consideration. The period of consideration. This is where our Lord begins his public ministry. It is at this point that he's baptized by John the Baptist. He performs his first miracle. His first disciples come to him and begin to follow. Uh, as disciples of Christ and he performs the first of two two of eight sign miracles in this gospel this is the period of consideration now with the opening of the fifth chapter of the Gospel of John John introduces his readers to a period of controversy period of controversy chapter 5 all the way to chapter 7 If you have read through the Gospel of John, you might have noticed a change in tone starting with the 5th chapter. There's a sense where from here on out in the 5th chapter, the enemies of Christ dig in. They've kind of like, they're set in their opposition against the Lord. They dig in and they begin to vigorously oppose Christ and His ministry. They intensify their opposition against him. We studied this last week that they tried harder to kill him after his statement in verse 17. They're opposed to him, but starting in chapter 5, it intensifies a degree of their antagonism against Christ. And this is a profound effect of the disciples. I mean, they're excited, they're following the Lord, his ministry is growing and prospering. He's performing miracles. And yet they see this brewing controversy, this opposition, antagonism against their Lord, and there's an effect against them. In chapter 5, this external pressure begins to grow against the disciples. And then in chapter 6, an internal pressure because Christ makes specific demands to the disciples on, on terms of his discipleship. He raises the bar, if you will. If you want to follow me, you must have. You must literally eat my flesh. The commitment to me must be internal, must be exhaustive, must be complete. So disciples are going through controversy as is the Lord. Now this, this period of controversy is all precipitated by a seemingly harmless, innocuous event. I had to look up innocuous just to make sure I had it right. But a harmless, innocent event. We started this last week. Our Lord goes to Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 5. And he goes to the pool of uh, Bethesda uh, by the sheep gate. And there are a bunch, of the, all these sick people, the blind, the deaf, the lame, that are gathered at this pool because they, ha- they believed in a myth that you can be cured when the water was stirred by a certain angel. Well, consider this pathetic uh, um, picture here. These sick people are gathered for a healing that will never come. And there is a particular invalid who's been paralyzed for 38 years our Lord, out of compassion, out of pure mercy, reaches out to this man, and he heals him completely, where instantly, he gets up out of his mat, on which he was lying upon, and he begins to walk. And our Lord tells him, take up your mat, take your mat and go. But the controversy was surrounding this surrounding this um, miracle, because the day was the Sabbath. It was the Sabbath, the seventh day. And the Sabbath police, they're out in full force. These religious leaders, upon seeing this guy who was an invalid for 30 years, can you blame him for carrying his mat? They arrest him, they seize him and persecute him. They're like the Jewish Taliban, I guess. They're enforcing religious rules on people. And they're persecuting him. What are you doing working on the Sabbath? And here's this man, his response is that this man who healed me, told me to carry the mat. I'm not culpable. It is not my responsibility. The responsibility, the onus is upon this man and later on they found find out that it is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So they surround Jesus in Jerusalem and they persecute him starting in verse 16 and they say all manner of ill against him because he has transgressed against the law of God and they were not prepared for Christ's response. They were not ready A staggering, shocking response by Christ. He says in verse 17, You know why I worked on on the Sabbath? You know why I healed? My Father is is always at His work to this very day, and I too am working. I'm sure the Pharisees are blown away. They literally took a step back. They were cocking their fists. Because Jesus had the audacity to call the Father, my Father. And we went into that last week. He was claiming a superior, unique relationship, that, they, that he was one in essence, one in nature with God, my Father. And my Father, he rested on the first Sabbath as an example to the world, but not every Sabbath after that. My Father is always working, therefore I am working. So he's equating himself with God, right? God is working, that's why I am working. Why? Why? therefore because I am God and the Jews understood this Jews understood that this was not he didn't misspeak they're not misunderstanding him they understood verse 18 that he had made himself equal to God sin in their eyes of blasphemy well look if anybody else had made the statement it would be blasphemy if Abraham, if Moses, Isaiah, all the prophets throughout the scriptures had made this statement, they would be an instantly a false prophet and a blasphemer and worthy of capital punishment, worthy of the death penalty, but not Christ. Because when Christ made these statements, when Christ said these words, these words are completely true. Well, Starting in verse 18, they tried all the harder to kill him. Verses 19 through 30, our Lord defends himself. And we don't want, I don't want to give any kind of sense where Jesus Jesus is on trial. And as we conclude this section, that'll be blatantly clear. That Christ is not defending himself to appease the Pharisees. He's not on trial here. They are on trial. The verdict is guilty and Christ... uh, um, stops on the gavel and declares this be, that this is true. They are on trial, not Christ, but for the sake of testimony he defends himself and he claims, um, he makes claims con- concerning his deity that he is in fact God in flesh. Nowhere in, New Testament, uh, nowhere in the New Testament will you ever find such a clear declaration in the words of Christ himself concerning his true identity. I mean, this is A great statement concerning who Jesus really is. In verse 19, the son does nothing by himself. It's not pointing to his limitation. It's pointing to his perfect conformity, his perfect unity in his will and his action with God. He's saying God and I are perfectly one together. Verse 21, just as the father gives life, I give life. Just ask. Verse 22, the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Why? Verse 23, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Why? An incredible statement. The second part of that is, anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. If anyone does not acknowledge the deity, the lordship, the authority of Christ, they are not in any way honoring God. In verse twenty-five, he says that salvation is found in Him alone; that His words give life. And then he comes back all the way around to his opening statement again in verse thirty: "By myself, I can do nothing. My judgment, my testimony, are perfectly united with God the Father because we are one; we are united." Oh, verse thirty-one then is a continuation of that idea, and starting in verse thirty-one. Jesus calls witnesses to validate his claims. He calls witnesses to confirm what that what he is saying is true. Now look at verse 31. Our Lord says, If I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. The NIV says it this way, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. Now what is he saying in that verse? What is our Lord saying in verse 31? Now, just theologically we know that certainly he is not saying that his his words are not true unless they are confirmed by someone else. Right? He can't be saying that. Right? I mean, the law does say in Deuteronomy 19.15 that there must be two or three witnesses to confirm truth, for truth to be established. But that law is for man. God never needs a confirming testimony about his word. God doesn't need man to affirm and validate his testimony. Men need that, but not God, not the Son of God. To suggest that Christ needs affirmation by anyone is deeply dishonoring. I believe he is saying this for their benefit. The context is important. They're trying all the harder to kill him. They're opposing him. They're set to persecute and murder him. And our Lord says, in your estimation, according to your views, if I testify concerning myself, you believe my testimony is not true. This is confirmed in John chapter 8. Later on in John chapter 8, the controversy is brewing, it is intensified, and he makes a statement. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. And then in 8.13, the Pharisees challenged him, Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Our Lord knows that they are thinking this. So in the outset of verse 31, he tells them, According to your view, unless I have conforming witnesses, my testimony is not valid. He informs them. He knows that they will not accept his testimony by itself. So in verse 32, that's why Jesus says, there is another who testifies in my favor. There is someone else, and I know that his testimony about me is true. He knows that. He says, I know it is true, because he is God. Who is this witness? We find out from verse 37, that this confirming witness is God himself. God the Father himself. Look at verse thirty-seven. The Father who sent me has Himself testified concerning me. Now, verse thirty-two, he does not identify who this witness is, but based upon verses thirty-three through thirty-five, it's obvious that the Jews had someone in mind. So you have someone else that confirms your claim. It must be John the Baptist. You're thinking about John the Baptizer. Our Lord, perceiving this, he says, verse 33, you have sent to John, he has testified to the truth, right? Jesus doesn't say that, he does not say that the testimony, that the witness is John. He says, you sent to John, but he is not my witness. Why? Because verse 34, Christ says, the witness that I receive is not from man. The witness that God calls is not a man. But the witness that the Pharisees are thinking of is this man, John the Baptist. Now, why does Jesus mention this? Because the Pharisees acknowledged that John the Baptist was a prophet of God. They actually sent a contingent, a representative of Pharisees to go to the other side of Jordan, the middle of the desert, middle of the wilderness, to listen to John the Baptist, to observe his ministry. And their report was that this man is certainly a prophet. Our Lord contrasts himself with the leaders. In verse 33, that you in the Greek is emphatic. That's the first word in the Greek. Our Lord is contrasting. You sent to John. You you acknowledge John. But I, verse 34, but I do not receive. I do not entertain. I am not seeking man's testimony. Jesus doesn't need man's testimony to confirm who he is. He doesn't need John. Verse 33 tells us why he mentions John. He mentions it out of compassion. You, you acknowledge John as a, as a prophet, so maybe you'll believe him. You won't believe me. You, you believe in John, so why don't you believe what John is saying? John said, Behold the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. John said of me I am worthy to untie his shoelaces John said of me he must increase I must decrease why don't you believe in John he said this that they might be saved but they won't believe in John they won't believe in Christ Uh, and that's the sad response these Jewish leaders our Lord again does not accept or need man's testimony How can a man confirm God? How can a sinful man add to God who is infinitely holy? It is impossible. Our Lord says, you know what? I don't need a man's testimony to confirm my claims. Not only do I not need a man's testimony, he says, I have a greater witness. I don't need his testimony because I have a far greater witness. Verse 36, but the, wit- but the witness which I do have is greater than John. In every way, the three witnesses that the Lord will call in every way is far superior than the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. So starting in verse 36, one by one, he calls three witnesses that will confirm his claims that he is equal with God. The first witness, the first testimony is the works of Christ verse 36 the works of Christ for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me first proof guys what is the proof that Christ is really sent by God the Father what evidence is there that he is indeed the Son of God Our Lord sets aside John's testimony, and he raises this this evidence, this irrefutable testimony of his miraculous works. He directs their attention to these works as the first evidence, first proof, if you will, of his deity. He says, these works that the Father assigned to me testify. They declare that I am God in flesh. I am equal with God the Father. Even one of their own acknowledged this. Remember John chapter 3? A certain man named Nicodemus came to Christ at night because he feared the Jews. And what did he say to Christ? John 3 verse 2. He said, Rabbi, we know you are from God. We know you're from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Even, a, even, even one of their own, a Pharisee, remember the Sanhedrin, acknowledged the irrefutable evidence. Look at the miracles that you're doing. Obvious, you're sent by God. Later on in John chapter 9, verse 26, another healing causes a great controversy. In John chapter 9, it's this blind man who is healed. They... They interrogate this blind man, the Pharisees. And they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? John 9:27. I told you already you did not listen. You want to hear it again, do you? Do you want to become his disciples too? They hurled insults at him. And they said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We don't know where this man has come from. The man replied, We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of someone opening eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This blind man testifies, obviously, by his works. Prove that this man is God. Sent by God because no one can perform such miracles were not from God. Here is the first witness that Christ appeals to uh, in proof of his deity. His works are especially for those New Testament um, um, people that surrounded him, uh, they're witnesses of his miracles. They were irrefutable, unmistakable witnesses to him. Our Lord, his miracles are amazing. He gave hearing to the deaf, speech to the dumb, sight to the blind. He cleansed the leper. He delivered those who are possessed by demons. He even gave life to the dead. And all these miracles confirmed his true identity. You know, it's interesting. It is interesting in Luke chapter 7. After John the Baptist was imprisoned by Herod, John the Baptist was in prison and he heard about the statements of Christ and this great Old Testament prophet had a moment of doubt. He questioned whether his testimony was right. You remember this guys? He called to his disciples and he said, will you go to Jesus and ask him this question for me? The question is, are you the one who wants to come or should we expect someone else? Right? I mean, he's in prison. And he's thinking, did I make a mistake? Did I point out the wrong guy? These two disciples go to Christ and they ask him this question, Jesus are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Or should we continue to look for someone else? And how did Christ respond to this question? Luke 7:21. At that time Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. The proof that he gave to the Pharisees, same proof he gave to John the Baptist in his moment of doubt. What's the proof that he is God, that he is the Messiah? Look at my works. Look at my miracles. Touch this man. Walk with this lady. Right. Speak with this gentleman. These are all signs, testimonies, if you will, validating my claim as equal to God. Right. I mean, These miracles mean something. They are neon signs, if you will, pointing to the fact that He is God. You know, my wife and I this past week, we were watching TV and saw this guy David Blaine all all this uproar about this guy what is going on here they devoted a whole hour on this guy he was standing on a pole 10 stories high and they said he's gonna jump I was like man he's gonna jump on concrete that's awesome that's amazing should I record this and it turns out he doesn't jump on concrete he jumps on a bunch of boxes That have like styrofoam, all padded. Then he jumps, and he's okay, and he's acting all like he's sick, but he's all right. What's the big deal? What does this mean? Doesn't mean anything. He admits it's it's a trick, it's magic, it's a gimmick. It means don't ever play cards with him because he's sneaky. (laughs) Doesn't say anything about who he is, his identity. Well, not so with Christ. Christ didn't go around levitating. doing card tricks, I don't know, right? guessing people's names, your name is... no! J.C. Ryle calls attention to seven things that are connected with the Lord's miracles number one they were not few they were very many he didn't perform just a few miracles he performed countless miracles secondly they were great right they weren't little miracles they were incredible miracles thirdly they were done in public not in a corner, not secretly, not only a few eyewitnesses, but done in public. Fourthly, they were almost always works of love, acts of compassion. Right? Almost always acts of compassion. Fifthly, they made direct appeal to man's senses. It can be verified. This man was blind. Now he can see. This man was an invalid. He can walk. They were verifiable miracles. Sixthly, they were artless. Meaning, they were not staged. He didn't call the cameras. He didn't call his publicity manager. I mean, he wasn't staged in any sense. In the natural course of his ministry, he performed miracles. And seventhly, they were efficacious. The the cures were instantaneous. They were not gradual. They were complete and perfect. All these miracles point to. That He is God, irrefutable. This is this alone is enough. We don't need any anything else. But then He continues. He says, "I have one more witness. It's found in verse um, thirty-seven. And the Father who has sent me has testified Himself concerning me. The second witness is God, the Father Himself. The Father personally testifies that Jesus is His Son, meaning." Same in essence, same nature, we are both God. When did this happen? Commentators, Bible interpreters are somewhat, there's a debate about what our Lord is referring to here. To me, it's somewhat clear. It's past tense. The most obvious choice is Matthew 3. When our Lord was baptized by John the Baptist, and that inaugurated his public ministry, soon as he came up and out of the water, Something happened in this baptism that will never happen in any of our baptisms. right? If, you got, if you're baptized, this didn't happen to you. Right? The earth didn't open up, the skies didn't open up, there was no voice. When Jesus was baptized, the skies opened up, the Spirit of God descended like a dove, lighting on Him, and a voice from heaven testified, saying, This is my Son, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This was an audible voice of God heard by all those who were present at the baptism, testifying that Jesus' claims are true. The third and final witness called by Christ, called to the stand by Christ, is the testimony of the scriptures. The testimony of the scriptures. Verse 39, You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. This is the last testimony, last witness, and for you and I, it is most important. Why? Because miracles of Christ are no longer around us. No more miracles. It's it's past. The audible voice of God, that's past. But this testimony is with us today. You and I are holding it with our hands. This testimony, this witness testifies today, even today. This is the climax. By order, Jesus places greatest importance, the greatest authority on the scriptures. Miracles, God, and the words of God. Jesus says, you diligently study the scriptures. It's present indicative, continued action. You are today even continually meditating, memorizing the word of God, thinking that by them you possess eternal life. But he tells them, you fail to see what is revealed in the scriptures. That the word of God testifies concerning me. The law of God is the shadow. I am the reality. I am here. And you're still looking at the shadow. Right? I mean, think about this. You're waiting for a friend. On a hot day, you're waiting for your friend. You're waiting for hours. And finally, you see this guy come across the corner and you see his shadow. And because you know your friend so well, by the shape, it's your friend, right? Whatever shape it might be, you know it's your friend. And your friend comes to you, and you're looking at the shadow. Hey, shadow, how you doing? And your friend's like, what's wrong with you? I'm here. Well, that's what the Pharisees are doing. The law is a shadow of Christ. But Christ is here before their eyes, and they're still looking at the law. So you are trying to figure out what the shadow is saying. They got caught up with the details of the law. And they missed the whole intent of the law of God. That they were pointing to Christ. Look, Apostle Paul, who was Saul, was a Pharisee himself. And what does he say? Romans 3.21 Now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. To which the law and the prophets testify. Paul says, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, prophesies and testifies... Towards Christ, our Lord called his three greater and irrefutable witnesses: his works, God the Father, the Word of God. They all affirm that he is God, that he's the Son of God, that he's the Messiah. Greater testimony simply do not exist. There's no higher authority. I mean, this is truth. You can bank on this. Well, the question remains: why does the controversy continue? Why is that in John chapter 5, they they don't all submit to him, get on their knees and repent and trust in Christ? Why is it that they are still intent on killing Christ? That's the question, right? Why is it? Why did they reject Christ as the Messiah? These were his people. They were the patriarchs. They were given the law. The temple was theirs. The sacrifices. I mean, everything pointed towards Christ. And yet, how is it But they rejected him after all of this. How is this possible? Well, starting in verse 40, our Lord turns the tables. And our Lord answers this question. He says, this is why you reject me. This is why you hate me. This is why you want to murder me. It's not because of lack of proof, lack of witnesses, lack of evidence. He turns the tables and he testifies against them. Testifies against them. He goes on the offensive. And starting in verse 40, all the way to verse 47, our Lord makes four indictments against these Jewish leaders. Four indictments against these Jewish leaders. These four indictments reveal the true reasons behind their hatred, true motivations why they reject him as the Messiah. The first one is found in verse 40. You search the scriptures day and night, you meditate, you memorize the law of God, it testify to me, and yet, verse 40, you refuse to come to me and to have life. You refuse. Their rejection is a conscious rejection. It is a woeful, stubborn rejection. Something very parallel to what Kirk was talking about. Right? Stubbornness, stubborn pride. I refuse to come. No matter what, I don't care what, what miracles I see. I don't care what proof, what evidence. I am set in my ways and I will not change. They simply will not come. They refuse to come and be saved. It points to stubborn pride, they're stiff-necked. They will not turn, they will not repent. Their hearts are callous, their hearts are set on rejecting Christ. They want to kill him and nothing else matters. They are blinded by Mount Everest sized pride utterly refuse to submit to him. John 3 19 this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. Woeful, stubborn, stubborn refusal, stubborn pride. Secondly, second indictment is they don't have the love of God. They don't have the love of God. It's really neat what, God, what Christ does here in verse 41. He contrasts again himself with the Pharisees, with his Jewish leaders. He says, "I do not accept praise from men." Verse 41. All right? The word "accept" here signifies seek. All right? He's not seeking the honor of men, the praise of men. He says this because he's, he wants to tell them that he's not defending himself. He's not calling these witnesses to get their approval. Like, okay, if you accept me now, you know, will you receive me? Am I in? That's not why he's calling the witnesses. Right? He's not seeking the approval of men. He did not need their sanction. He did not need need or want their applause. To him, only approval he was seeking was God. He contrasts that with the Pharisees, verse 42. But I know you. Man, that's, a, that's an awesome statement, right? Christ's omniscience. I know you. I know your heart. I know your thoughts. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. Our Lord is the heart searcher. And he knows that they are not zealous for the word of God, honor of God. That they are zealous for the approval of men. Matthew 23:5, Christ says to them, everything, is, everything they do is done for men to see. He is telling them that what was motivating them, towards obeying, observing the Sabbath, a sin of blasphemy, keeping the laws. It wasn't love for God. It was love for men. They want to please men. They make a profession of loving Him, but there is no true, there is no real love for God. But they're in it for personal gain. I want to just pause here for a brief moment because I think um, our Lord is saying something very important here. Very important. He is talking to the religious leaders, but this is a disease that is not confined to the Pharisees of the New Testament. That this is a disease that continues even to today, in the church today, and present in us. He has excavated from the mire of these men's hearts and brought forth what drives their religious system. It's not honor, honoring God, it's not pleasing the Lord, it's not seeking God's glory. What drives them is is they want the praise of men. They want to be liked. They want to be accepted. They want the glory of man's attention. And Christ says, this is diametrically opposed to loving God. Did you guys get that? How she didn't distract you guys, right? (laughs) Seeking the praise of men is opposite of loving God. It's not a small sin. It's not a minor vice. You know, yeah, I got to correct that. You know, I have a tendency to do things for men and I got to cut that out. No, that is diametrically opposed to loving God. It's a serious threat to genuine faith, being a man pleaser. Right. Seeking the praise, glory, and attention of men is a serious vice. Proverbs 29 5 The fear of man will prove to be a snare. It will trap you, keep you from loving God. Paul says the same thing in Galatians 1:10. Am I now trying to please men? Am I trying to win the approval of men? If I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. It's either or either I please men, or either I please God. There is no gray area. When anyone Seeks the world's approval, we abandon pleasing God. We abandon pleasing God. Well, these Jewish leaders, they were they rejected Christ because of stubborn pride. Secondly, because they sought after the praise of men rather than God. The third indictment is found in verse 45. Christ says, Your accuser is Moses. Your accuser is Moses. Verse 45. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are said. There's a great sense of irony here in verse 45. The present tense signifies that Moses is a standing witness against them. A present accuser. It's ironic because they profess to follow Moses. Their boast... Their pride was that they were disciples of Moses. John 9, 28. You are this fellow's disciple. What do they say? We are disciples of Moses. They set their hope in Moses. Christ says, I know Moses personally. And he is your accuser. Not I. Just as they twisted the scriptures, so also they twisted the writings of Moses. Jesus' accusation, his indictment, if you will, is that the person that they hoped in is their accuser because they fell short of obeying the law of God. Let me quote to you from Machen. He was a pastor and a theology prof uh, several decades ago. Somewhat lengthy, but listen to what he says. The Judaism of this period is not characterized by a profound sense of sin. And the reason is not far to seek. The legalism of the Pharisees, with its regulation of the minute details of life, was not making the law too hard to keep. They were making it easy to keep. Because they're twisting it to fit their system. He concludes, a low view of law leads to legalism. High view of law leads to a man seeking after the grace of God. The fact that they sought after Moses tells us that they had a low view of the law of God. Because they were twisting it and they became legalistic. If you have a high view of Moses, you will say, I cannot keep these laws. They are a schoolmaster leading me to Christ. Leading me to the mercy and grace of God because it is impossible for me to keep these laws. So in spite of all their boasting, all their outward profession, they were not followers of Moses. And then the last indictment, the strongest one, verses 46 through 47, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Not only is Moses their accuser, Not only is their profession false, they don't even believe in Moses. They don't believe his words. The contrast here is between the writings of Moses and the words of Christ. That's the contrast. Our Lord is saying, you guys talk about the Torah all the time, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. You say it's so high, you revere it, you memorize it, you consider it sacred. You quote it verbatim wherever you go. You don't even believe the Torah. You don't even believe the writings of Moses. Now, if you don't believe the writings that you so revere so highly, so esteem, how are you going to believe what I say? Right? Impossible. The converse is true. If you believe in the writings of Moses, you would believe in me because the scriptures testify Towards me, says Christ. Right. This is the greatest misconception I believe of the Pharisees, and it—I think—it does all of us a great deal of harm. Um, a, a great, a fair number of people have warned me not to warn me not to be too committed to the Bible, because I'll become legalistic like the Pharisees. Have you heard that? You don't want to believe the Bible too much, because then you'll be a Pharisee. On the cornerstone, he has that kind of reputation sometimes. Man, they're so into the Bible. The guy preaches for like 40 minutes, and they all listen and write notes. They're like Pharisees. The greatest misconception of the Pharisees is that they did not believe the Bible. Right? That's what led them astray what Christ called them to, it's the exact opposite. They were not committed to the laws of God. If they believed the Bible, if they believed in the Old Testament, they would have believed in Christ. God's will for us is likewise. To believe in the word of God, to commit to the word of God. If we believe in the word of God, we will in no way miss out on God's will. Well, this is a this is the truth spoken by our Lord. He He defended himself, not before man, but before God, and called three witnesses, his works, God the Father, and the words of Christ, the words of Scripture, and then he made four scathing indictments against his enemies that proved to be true. Well, again, our Lord was speaking to these Pharisees. How does this apply to us? Let me suggest three applications for all of us here. Number one, if you have not trusted in Christ today, will you admit that it is out of stubborn pride? I mean, you're reaching. You're reaching. You have nothing to hold on to. You have all these proofs, these testimonies, these miracles of Christ, irrefutable evidence, proof that Christ is God. But The only reason you stay as a non-Christian, as an unbeliever, is simply pride. You don't want to change. You don't want to repent. You want to hold on to yourself and you're just being stubborn. Will you repent today? Will you turn to Christ? Humble yourself and repent. Second application is do you have genuine love for God? Do you have love for God? I mean, in a church, it's so dangerous to be motivated by doing things before men, doing things to be seen. And that's not a small sin. That's not a small harmless vice or a character defect, a personality issue. That's a serious sin. It's a dangerous, soul-threatening vice. Look, you and I, we must be motivated purely by the glory of God, purely to please Him. If in your heart today you are dominated by people's opinions, you fear men. Your life is driven by, what do my parents think? What does my friends think? What do my friends think? What would what the church think? If that is what's driving you today, I'm afraid you have a short Christian life ahead of you. You will not be with us too long. Not because of anything in the church or, or, or anything personal, because this is a soul-threatening sin. If you're seeking the pleasure of men, you do not love God. And that is the motivation of all true Christianity. Love for God. That is the one commandment made by God, Deuteronomy 6. That is the one question Christ made to Peter Do you love me? The sole thing that drives our, our obedience, our worship, our activities, everything we do must be the love of God. And finally, um, do you truly believe in Jesus Christ? I mean, look at these Jews. I mean, they diligently study the scriptures. They set their hope on Moses. And the shocking truth is, Moses is their accuser. Could we parallel that with some false Christians today? They study the Bible, they're involved in religion, they're involved in ministry, they profess to have hope in Christ. Well, if your faith is not genuine, Christ is your accuser. Christ will say to you, the false believers, false Those who are false Christians, Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you workers of iniquity. I will be your accuser. Saying that it was outward pretension. Your faith was disingenuous. You thought you hoped in me. The shocking truth is, I will be your accuser. Encourage you to not be blind like these Pharisees, all of us, myself included, that we would seek and endeavor to put our complete trust, complete hope, and believe in Christ and His words. Let's pray. Well Lord, in a way, um, we're just humbled at your grace, God. Um, You're so patient with these Jewish leaders. And they were intent on murdering your own son, laying their sinful hands against his body. And they murdered him. They rejected him. And how? We're no better. All of us, at one time, rejected Christ. We hated him. We rebelled against him. And we murdered Christ because it was our sins that put that that caused Him to die on the cross. It was our sins that caused, that forced Him to die, caused Him to die. Lord, we're so we we are so prone to point out the sinfulness of the Pharisees. Lord, may each of us look into our own hearts and see these sins in our own hearts, and may it. Cause us, having a higher view of God's word, may it cause us to cling to you. May it cause us to cast ourselves in the grace and mercy of Christ that we might be saved. Lord, we love you. We want to honor you. We want to glorify you. You are God. You are King. You are equal with the Father. May all worship go to you untouched. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.